Oh, I'm glad. I want to talk about... Well, let's, let's do it. I want to talk about you as a doctor facing life and death. Is that something... <laughs> yeah, we can. Uh, let's do it. So... <clears throat> don't, don't tell me where you're going to go. Okay. Just, let's do it. So, but, but you may have to do a lot of post-editing. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Um, Paul Kalanithi writes in his famous book, When Breath Becomes Air, that before his cancer was diagnosed, he knew that someday he would die, but he didn't know when. Quote, after the diagnosis, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. But now I knew it acutely. The problem wasn't really a scientific one. The fact of death is unsettling, yet there is no other way to live. Today on Espresso and Earl Grey, Dr. Sam Chan, who is not only a theologian doctor, but also a doctor doctor, and I are gonna talk about life and death and how we should think about it, not only from a scientific perspective, but from a spiritual perspective as well. So grab your favourite beverage and join us on Espresso and Earl Grey. I've recently finished reading um, When Breath Becomes Air. Mm. And then I've just started Being Mortal. Yeah. By oh, the um, Indian dude. Yeah. Atul. Gawade. <laughs> that. Yeah, the Indian. Oh, Atul Gawade. The, yeah. Yeah, I've and, read that. Um, it's great. I've I've been fascinated because he talks about treating. Um, he's an oncologist, I think, and he's treating cancer. And he talks about not about when he asks patients, it's not about um, how long you want to live, but the the how you want to live. Yeah. You as a doctor, you've you've faced life this and death. This will perfectly complement each other. Yeah. Because I was a young doctor. Yeah. And to me it really was a scientific rationalism. Yeah. This is yeah. a dead person. Get yeah, over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, how did you as a young person, as a young doctor, you, you just get desensitized into... and you just taught not to feel. Yeah. 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 We're like soldiers. I, I think medicine is the closest equivalent to sending young people off to war. Right. He's a How gun. How old were you when you... 23. 23? Probably declared my first person dead at 23. Wow. Probably picked up my first dead body at 18. You're, you're a young soldier. Yeah. How did you process that? I think, like soldiers, there's this whole group mentality. I'm, I'm one of many. I'm desensitised. I can't let the side down. I can't show emotion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, if you ask the medical community... We're like soldiers. I'm sure all of us carry a bit of post-traumatic stress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we've seen and done things. Yeah, A normal yeah. human being is not asked to see and do. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we begin as a body, like, like boot camp, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Is, is there a high rate of drop dropout in medical school? I don't think there's a high rate of dropout. High, high rate of stress, burnout, suicide, depression, anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I, um, but if you really, really don't cope, you, you can find a, a you know, specialty yeah, where yeah, you don't yeah. have to see dead bodies yeah, yeah, or yeah, blood yeah. or guts yeah. or something. So tell me, if you don't mind, that first moment you touched the dead body, 
what was going through your I would have been 18. Yeah. It would have been an anatomy class yeah. where they have all these dead bodies chopped up, sitting in vats of formalin. Yeah. You can pull out a head, you can pull out an arm, yeah. you can pull out a leg, you can pull out a torso, yeah, you can yeah, pull yeah. out a chest. They've been pre-dissected, so the organs are on display. This is the 1980s, mid-1980s. Uh, very different world, definitely in the modernity, scientific world. This is a body, get over it. Yeah. And these people have donated their bodies to science, yeah, yeah. get over it. Did you puke? Did you? No, I never, never, never puked. Here's a funny thing, I've come close to fainting several times. One, again, this is 1980s. In physiology, we experimented on a live rabbit. We put the rabbit asleep and we basically experiment on it. We, we put tubes in its heart and lungs and we cut off its oxygen, see what that does to it. And I remember coming so close to fainting, watching what was happening to a rabbit. You feel your lips tingle, the room comes, becomes blacker yeah, and blacker. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you think, oh my gosh, I'm gonna faint. But I can't faint in front of the class. So you find a way to start conversation again or sit down in a corner and fortunately not faint. Another time, is when we do when you're a medical student in an operation and chests are cut open abdomens are cut open and i think if i used to say this to myself if you're going to faint this would be the place to do it like <laughs> what you're saying and then just by saying that i go oh my gosh it's happening i'm about to faint and you suddenly have to make small talk like hey what did you do on the weekend and suddenly that will get you out of it. Yeah, so I never yeah. fainted, but it came close. Yeah. But in the anatomy classes, the dead bodies, because they've been sitting in formalin, the, the human tissue looked like pork meat. Right, right. And then right. I remember- so really dark red. You had this class before, well, it's a pale sort of color. Yeah, okay. Like, like, oh, right, like right. cooked Pinkish. pork. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And then you'd have the class in the morning, and then you have lunch, and you would have a chicken or pork sandwich. You think, oh my gosh. <laughs> but that would desensitise you. You suddenly realise the human body is actually no different to another species yeah, yeah. of animal. So tell me, your first death. You're, you're a junior doctor, an intern or resident. You're working the night shift. It's so impersonal. And the night shift, you're meant to cover all these wards where you weren't the day doctor for those wards. Or, yeah. So you don't know any of the patients or the nurses. Uh, a nurse will call you, hey, this is ward 13. Can you declare this patient dead for us, please? It's, as, wow. it's, it's so matter of fact. It's as simple as, you know, can you order a chicken sandwich? Yeah, 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 <laughs> and so yeah. you go there. They just show you their dead body. They just leave you alone. They don't even care about you. You're the junior doctor. You're on the bottom of the yeah, hierarchy. Yeah. So you don't even know what to do, but you pull out the notes and you just write in it, the patient is dead. Right. And, and that's all you have to do. Right. But but someone said you're meant to at least examine the yeah. patient. So write something like pulses absent, breathing absent, reflexes absent. The patient is dead, and then just write a time, declare them dead. Yeah. I once declared the wrong patient dead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I examined the patient, but I pulled out the wrong notes. Oh. <laughs> and I wrote in the notes the patient is dead, and then you pull out the the details of the patient, and you ring up the relatives. And you're oh, never no. meant to say your, your relative has died. You don't say that on the phone because it stresses people out too much. I don't know if they do it now, but back in the 80s, you didn't. So you just say, there's been a sudden change of condition. I think you should come in. 
And then you're meant to ring up the consultant doctor who looks after that patient, ring them up at home. It could be two in the morning, but you're meant to ring them up at two because better that they find out from you now rather than 6 a.m. Uh, later from someone else. So you ring up, wake up the surgeon at two in the morning, ah, uh, patient in bed 23 has died, uh, I'm sorry. And then I remember the surgeon saying, funny, you seemed all right today. <laughs> And then, and then finding out, oh, okay, I have declared the wrong person dead. Bring up the relatives. Oh, no need to come in. <laughs> you got better. We, we once had this resuscitation. I won't name the hospital. Again, at night time. This is a night time where you have a skeleton staff. Yeah. Most of the most qualified doctors are not there. And we had to do this resuscitation. And, and so that's where you pump away in the person's chest. You try to give them drugs to get their heart working again. You do the whole cardio version, you know, yeah, thing yeah, with yeah. the paddles that you see on yeah. TV. After about 30 minutes, you realize, okay, it's not going to work. And so you remove all the tubes. And the most junior doctor, again, me, you have to declare the patient dead. I declare the patient dead, ring up the consultant, ring up the relatives. And someone yells out, He's breathing again. <laughs> <laughs> so what was running through your head when when you see a dead pet, like you resuscitate someone and they don't get resuscitated? This is the horrible thing. And I'm sure things have changed. And so this is the 1980s. It's the Wild West. I'm a junior doctor. I'm 23. I'm 24. You've seen dead bodies sitting in formula vats at 18. Yeah. You're totally desensitized. Yeah. It, it, it's like looking at a dead chicken right. or a dead frog. Yeah. You've been to told, and I'm sure it's changed now in the 21st century, you've been taught, indoctrinated, that this is a body. It's not a person. It's yeah. not a relative. Yeah. Just get over it. Uh, so you declared the wrong body dead or you declared yeah. a body dead and now he's alive again. Great. Wow. Like, wow. you're totally removed. Like, yeah, like, yeah. like, there's no empathy. There's no compassion. I remember as a junior doctor working neurosurgery. Neurosurgery is where you have the horrible accidents. You know, so motorbike accidents, yeah. car accidents, uh, brain trauma. So usually young people who, who now have either facing death or irreversible brain damage or, or young people in their 40s or 50s with a brain tumour now facing a, an early, painful, unexpected death. Mm. And you would just say to relatives, oh, your, 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 your relative isn't going to make it. Yeah. And that's it. And they look at you these stunned eyes. Or you say, oh, you're, 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 you, you've got brain cancer. You've got six months to live. And you just give that news and just walk out and say, next! Because you've just been so desensitized. Right, you just right. saw this person as a person with a brain tumour. Not a 43-year-old father with two young yeah. children and a job and a mortgage and a, and a wife to look after and who has parents he needs yeah. to look after. And what does this mean? Did, did that contradict your, your faith? Like, were you wrestling with that with your faith or was that just disorientized? I think between the ages of 20 and 28, you're in this... I worked four years as a junior doctor. You really are. It's like they, you, you're on a space station. You're so divorced from the external world. I used right. to work in ICU, work these 16-hour shifts that began at 5 p.m. 
one day and finished at 8 or 9 a.m. the next day. So that's 15 or 16 hours in, in an intensive care unit with fluorescent lighting. So the day's night, the words daytime or nighttime lost all meaning. Right. The, the words yesterday, today and tomorrow lost all meaning because your, your shift covered yesterday, today and tomorrow. Yeah. So suddenly words that used to make sense don't make sense anymore. And you're cut off from external reality because yeah. you're not never in the outside world. And I think I just saw it as this weird, abnormal world in a very scientific, mechanistic right, universe. Right, right. If there's a God, he probably cares about, about this as much as he cares about billiard balls. Because <laughs> <laughs> billiard balls hit each other and they move, but they're impersonal, mechanistic atoms and molecules. And I think the scientific method that I was taught in the 70s and 80s made me treat a human being as atoms and molecules. Wow. A billiard ball, essentially. Like, this wow. is a brain tumour, but really it's just atoms and molecules that we cut out and we put under a microscope. Yeah. So, what led you then, and I think this question actually fits, what led you then to doing ministry? You know, going into ministry, which is seemingly the opposite right where humans are humans humans are seen as eternal be uh who have eternal life ahead of them um what what led you there that i i burnt out in medicine so after four years of this unsustainable workload and lifestyle uh, the pressure we'll put under again i'm sure everything's changed but in the 70s and 80s you're seen as a sign of weakness if you had to call in a senior doctor, it'll be you make a diagnosis, you ring up the, the surgeon, and the surgeon will say, Okay, you're happy to operate? And you go, uh, uh, Yeah, I am. I was hoping you would come in, but uh, I guess you're not coming in. So, yes, yes, I would do the operation. And just being asked to do something you didn't have the competency or confidence to do. While there's a room full of nurses and other doctors watching you do an operation that yeah, you are yeah. butchering, yeah. literally, like, like, and you'd walk out like devastated. Like, Who am I? I'm not. I'm not good enough for this job. So I burned out after four years of that. Took a year off. A few other things happened, but then I was quite involved with my own local church, and they said, "Hey, you seem to have a gifting in public speaking and teaching. Why don't you think about ministry?" So. I felt like I, I was underqualified. I, I, okay, I might have the gift of speaking, but I didn't know what to speak about. I needed to right. go to Bible college for content. So I went to Bible college, long story, long journey, came out many years later. And in Bible college, not always, but you hang out with chaplains. Chaplains are good at empathy. Mm. They start teaching you listening skills. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh. This is what I needed right. when I was a doctor. Right. I, it's almost like I wish I'd done, done ministry first. And then, then I would have come out a as doctor. a 40-year-old with life experience and empathy. Yeah. And then when I tell a 43-year-old father he has brain tumor, a brain tumour, I would have done it a bit more sensitively, a right. bit more caringly. Right. And, and, and seeing this person in front of me as a human being, as a holistic person... Not just atoms yeah, and molecules. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It reminds me of um, have you have you read or seen the the play movie Wit? No. It's it's this movie where a, a it's 
it's a play where this uh, lady who's who's a who's a poetry professor gets diagnosed with a stage four ovarian cancer, and from for ninety minutes start to end is diagnosis to death, and there's a there's a the doctors there are treating her with such impersonalness or even fake hospitality but it's the nurses who come in and and treat her with such humanity and then at the end when she's in a coma and she's and the nurse and the doctor have a chat um and the nurse asks the doctor why did you get in oh no she asked the doctor the the patient why did you get into oncology studying cancer and then the doctor replies because it's so awesome and then she asks what do you mean because cancers mutate they don't they seemingly they don't die they have this immortality in them and i want to figure it out and then she asks the doctor don't you ever ask how the patient feel and then the, the doctor says no why and you're going Yes, I'm sitting there in, in the... I was watching it in, in uh, Seymour Theatre. I was sitting there crying. <laughs> and um, you realise, wow, there's... I hope my doctor, my oncologist, if I, ever, if I ever have cancer, isn't going to be that brutal. But, I'm, but it may be the case. Oh, I have got so many things I want to say right now. Again, I hope things have changed. Yeah. But when I was a med student, it would have been the late 1980s. They take you as a med student in a group of four or five med students yes. to visit patients at the bedside yeah, yeah. and there'll be a senior doctor showing you how to talk to a patient. And one of us asked an open-ended question to the patient, like, how do you feel? And the consultant went, oh, can you see what's happened? you've lost control of the interview at this moment. And oh so right from there, we're taught you can't ask those sort of questions. You need to be in control right. of the, of of the, the stages whole... of the interview. You need to be able to work out where it's going to go. You can't let a patient take over. Secondly, I think nurses, their job forces them to be, for the whole shift, with a handful of patients, where they had to touch and talk to the patients. Yes. Whereas doctors, we often would do walk-arounds from the corridor. And if we knew this patient had a complicated illness, which would require more than a 30 second conversation, we would actually deliberately not walk into that person's room. Instead, we'll just yell out from the corridor, hey, Mr. Smith, how's it going? Thank you, thank you, no, that's sorry. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. And that was the war drown. Like, we, we spent 10 or 30 seconds with each patient looking at their charts at the end of the bed, not touching them not trying to make eye contact because buddy I've got 40 other patients I need yeah, to squeeze yeah, in yeah, yeah. before we start you know the, the clinic and when I went to Bible college this guy's fascination with oncology was my fascination with the Bible oh I can't wait to learn the Greek the Hebrew I can't wait to mine the Bible for its data so I saw it as a very scientific project when I first went to Bible yeah, college yeah. Like 20 years later, now I see it's much more organic. The Bible's living. It's yeah, wild. Yeah, yeah. You can't control it with a microscope or a scalpel. Now, I reckon I should flip around because I've given you the scientific rationalism part of life and death. And I'll, maybe I'll, I'll begin with this. So people often ask me, when you do declare a patient dead, 
what is the difference between life and death? And I actually say to them now, you know what? I don't know. Because it's not just about brain functions, heart functions and all that, because we can simulate that in ICU with respirators, right? Yeah. And then there's an it to life. I say, you know what? In the end, a living person has this it thing that a dead person so obviously doesn't. So how about I, in the second half of this podcast, I flip to you to give me your thoughts on life and death. Yeah, yeah. What's your question again? Well, what does a living person have that a dead person doesn't have? Well, I think I was watching, I was watching, um, I Frankenstein, uh, (laughs) which is the same question, the Netflix, which is, um, very trashy movie, but, um, so it's about gargoyles fighting demons and, and, um, Frankenstein goes in. And there's two dialogues where the queen of the gargoyles stare into Frankenstein's eyes and says, um, Frankenstein was right. Sorry. Stares into Frankenstein's monster's eyes and says, your creator Frankenstein is right. There is no soul in your eyes. You're a living being, but you have no soul. And I think that's, that's the difference between a living and a dead person. There is no soul. Um, there is no life. There is no. There's no spirit in them. I remember one time I was working as a junior doctor in the emergency department, and the nurse at triage she just went to the microphone. Could someone please, could someone please bring the broken finger to x-ray, please? <laughs> and we all cringe, like, oh, how can you call a person a broken finger? But now I'm thinking the doctor, the scientific rationalist would say, why not? Yeah. I mean, we're just atoms and molecules. Like, we should just call people by their disease body parts, like get over it. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, and I, I think that's where the disability movement has been really helpful. The disability social movement has said that, no, we shouldn't be calling people the autistic James or the blind Jane or the blind child. We should be putting person first because pers- people have value. So we should be saying... It's Jane who is hearing impaired or John who needs the use of a wheelchair. Um, James who is on these autism spectrum. But then um, even, but I think the social um, disability uh, movement, as much as it moves forward, there is still that deeper meaning needed, that deeper, what does it mean to be a human? Just because you don't identify them as their disability, how do you um, see them as human? And I think this is where the Bible is speaking so deeply into it, that God breathes into clay. God breathes into a body and a mind, the ruach, the air, the spirit that gives life, that brings everything together. Um, and that's just, I think, so beautiful. And we, when we mix that together, then I think, yeah, we can say that it is a person-first society because p- 
people aren't defined by their disabilities. It's because they're people made in the image of God. Yeah, so somehow I'm more than just a sum of my body parts. I'm more than just a sum of my diseased body mm. parts. Mm. And we're all struggling, what is that it? That we're more than, or like what makes us more than our body parts? So it's Ruach, it's spirit, it's breath. And whenever I think that, I always think, oh, you know, people always telling me, like you're reading that book, When Breath Becomes, becomes air. air. And every time I tell people I was a doctor, I was a scientific rationalist, people say, oh, you need to read When Breath Becomes Air. Yeah. And of course, I haven't yet, but you have. So <laughs> yeah. please tell me, what is that book all yeah, about? Yeah, well, this is, I think it's, it's such a good book to read, regardless whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, an atheist or whatnot, because it really delves into the meaning of life. Because it talks about this, this, this uh, young resident who's going to neuro, who's a neurosurgeon, going to get uh, a uh, research degree, a research placement in Harvard or Stanford or one of them, and then, um, and then he finds out that he has a stage four cancer somewhere. I can't remember where, and it documents from him finding it out. To, he doesn't even finish the book. His wife finishes the book for him in the last chapter. Um, and it's his delving into what is the meaning of life because he spent years of working to a neurosurgery. And I think you can testify that neurosurgery is like the echelon of um, medicine. We used to have a joke where, where this nurse who hates neurosurgeons, and it's not harder, Hate <laughs> 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 and then the, the joke is when 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 she gets to heaven, that they um that she says to the angel at the gates like, would there be any neurosurgeons in heaven? And the angel goes, oh heavens, no, there'll be no neurosurgeons in heaven. You'll be fine. And then she walks around, and suddenly she sees a neurosurgeon, and. The nurse goes to the angel, what's this? I, I thought you said there were no neurosurgeons, but that's a neurosurgeon walking there. And the angel, angel replies, oh, yeah, that's just God. Every now and then he likes to pretend he's a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, anyway, so, so he, he, he's like at the top of the top of the top, getting into Stanford, Harvard, to do, uh, to do a research area into neurosurgery. And then he finds out, all that is just meaningless sometimes because he's not going to be able to do that anymore with as, as he gets into stage as he has to uh, get into therapy and chemotherapy and all that he's lost everything and so he has to find again what is true meaning and ultimately at the end he, he realizes his meaning is in his legacy his daughter um, and I guess that's that's it's such I remember reading it and crying my eyes out. I was on a bullet train in uh, Japan and you're not allowed to show emotion in Japan and you're not allowed to cry. And I was sitting there next to some businessman on a bullet train from Kyoto to Tokyo and with tears streaming down my eyes. But it really got me to question, what is life? Is it about moving up, about moving up in the ladder? Is it about doing the best that you could do in everything? And I guess that's so Aussie Australian, isn't it? Sorry, um, Asian Australian, <laughs> right? Do the best that you can do. Be the best that you can. Give me honour. Don't shame the family. 
do these things really, really matter in life? Yeah, so we're finding out more and more that life is more than just the sum of my achievements, more than just the sum of what I own, and even more just the sum of my body parts. It is. Somehow life is more than that. Yeah. So Sam Wayne, I'm the doctor, but I'll hand it to you to bring it home. Life, breath, air. How would you end this? Well, as a... I think, I wonder whether he got it wrong. I think it's when breath becomes spirit, perhaps. When we breathe our last, we give our spirits up. But it comes back to the start. If we are made in the image of God, and we are made to be like God, in a way, then the meaning of life is to live and to move in the direction of where God wants us to be. We have, like what C.S. Lewis says, a greater desire in us that this world can't satisfy. And because we're made in the image of God, we are desiring a place that God has prepared for us. If that's the case, then we need to find out who this God is. And death, I think, is just like, you know, back back long time ago, um, they would say that death is like crossing the River Jordan. Have you heard that saying? Death is just crossing the river. There's a beautiful image in um, John Bunyan's book. Um, what's John Bunyan's book? The Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. When they when they're near death, it's like a river. And um, the main character, Christian's wife, is nearing death. She's crossing the river and she's suddenly realising it's very cold, it's very lonely, and she doesn't know how deep it is. But then, as she reaches the middle, she realises it wasn't that deep after all, and that she was starting to come out the other side. And there in front of her, as the mist parted, was the golden gates of heaven. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Then they both took courage and discovered solid ground to stand upon. And the rest of the river was found to be shallow. That's Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you love what we've just heard, you can continue to listen to our previous episodes on Google Podcasts, iTunes Podcasts, Spotify or Podbean. Um, In a couple of days' time, I'll be reviewing some books that you can read which are great to think about life and death. Well, that's it for this week, and I'd love to see you next time on Espresso and Earl Grey.